We're going to be looking at that story of Zacchaeus this morning. One of the things I never realized, I mean, I, I, I guess I've known it, but I've just never paid any attention, is Zacchaeus actually only appears at one specific spot in the Bible, and that's in Luke chapter 19. It's in the very first 10 verses of chapter 19. And I want to read those words to us now, and then we're going to look at this story and talk a little bit about some of the things that God has put on my heart as, we've, as I've studied this and, and, and thought about it. So Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 9 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a, na- a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was so small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This story has much more to it than what we read. And you have to kind of fill in the gaps to get a full understanding for it. And, and, and I don't want to belabor it, but I do want to try and fill in those gaps for us a little bit. First of all, we don't really have a, a good understanding or a good sense of the situation that this young, that this man Zacchaeus was in. Zacchaeus, we're told, was small of stature, so short that he literally couldn't see over the heads and shoulders of the crowd that was gathered in the street trying to see Jesus, this itinerant preacher who was very famous and was heading down towards Jerusalem and he was coming through Jericho. And what we didn't read but just happened just before this was just before he got to Jericho, Jesus encountered blind Bartimaeus and a healing had taken place. So now the city's in this really big fervor. The, the healer's here. The Messiah's here. He, Jesus, remember, he, he just healed Bartimaeus. And there's this just huge roiling going on. The crowds are filling in the streets. Excitement is happening. And Zacchaeus is like, I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. Well, Zacchaeus was not well liked in this community. Now, I don't know, because I've never read it in any of my studies, I have no idea what the population of Jericho was at the time that this story took place. It could have been 50 people, it could have been 100 people, it could have been 1,000 people. I don't know. What I do know is that Jericho was a central, a very, very significant location on the trade route. 
What I do know is that Zacchaeus is defined or described as a chief tax collector. And uh, as I was reading and studying this, I heard and I read from other people that there is no other place in any ancient literature where that term or that title is used. Chief tax collector. So as people have thought about who he was and what he was, it, it is a, uh, there's a, there's a sense that, that Zacchaeus was kind of like the head over a, an agency of tax collectors. That he was the intermediary between the Roman government and all of the tax collectors of this region who were then extorting money from the people and then bringing it into their coffers and then passing it through Zacchaeus to the Roman government. And there was no real oversight from the government. As long as the government got what was expected, that's all that they cared. They knew that there's this many people in this community. There's this an expectation of this much money coming from that community to support the government. And however much you get from the people, as long as we get what we're needing, that's all that we care about. So there's this sense that the people who were collecting taxes at the street level were taking more than they should have because A, they wanted to pad their own pockets. B, Zacchaeus needed his cut and then the rest had to go on to the government. So there's this understanding from this idea that he's called the chief tax collector that he didn't just have 10 or 12 people that he was soaking, but he was soaking the entire region at every single dollar that was sent to the Roman government, he took a cut out of. So he literally was defrauding every single human being in the region. Everyone hated him. Everyone held him in low esteem. Everyone saw him as a crook. And they would do anything that they could to keep him from having any more influence over their lives. So now you can get an understanding as Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, and the crowd's all excited. And Zacchaeus comes running out of his house, this little short guy going, I want to see Jesus, I want to see Jesus. And they're like, get out of here. And they're literally elbowing him and pushing him back, and he can't, he's trying to jump up and see, and no one will let him through. And so what he does was, he says, oh, I, he's going to be coming down this road. So he runs down to where the sycamore tree is and he climbs up in it. Totally undignified, but he's just so focused. He wants to see Jesus. And he gets up in that sycamore tree and he's up there and he's so excited because here comes Jesus down the street and the whole crowd is, yeah, Jesus, Jesus. And all of a sudden Jesus walks to the base of the tree, looks up. Hey, Zacchaeus. How did he know his name? They'd never met before. But Jesus knows my name. Jesus knows my name. Jesus knows my name. Jesus knows who I am. He... How much else does he know? And maybe he starts trying to hide behind the leaves. 
Because he's now put himself in a very precarious spot because everyone is looking up into the tree because Jesus is looking up into the tree and calling the name. And Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, hurry up and get out of the tree because I must go to your house this day. And it says he jumped out of the tree and received him joyfully. I think there's something between the jumping out of the tree and the joyfully. Something had to have happened. Because if he was this nasty guy that no one liked and knew he was a bad guy in his own heart, and then Jesus knows his name, and how much more does he know about me? And now he's coming to my house? But he receives him joyfully. Now, again, we don't know the timeline. We're not given all of that information here in the scriptures. What we do know is that Zacchaeus gets down out of the tree. This little short guy, and he's like, Jesus, let's come out of my house. Come on. It's like Matt and Jeff. For those of you who are old enough to understand what I'm talking about. And Zacchaeus is like, he's coming to my house. Hey, tell my wife, Jesus is coming to my house. And all of a sudden, the crowd behind them starts grumbling. Now, I can tell you, when I was in sixth grade, every day after lunch, we were then sent off to the play field, playing field, the playground and the ball field to have recess after lunch. And every day, there was a different teacher who was responsible for being the playground attendant. And we were out there about a half an hour. And then we would go on to our classes after that. Well, one day, my homeroom teacher, I don't remember his name now. I'll call him Mr. Johnson. One day, Mr. Johnson, my homeroom teacher, was the attendant for the playground. Mr. Johnson had forgotten his watch that day. So Mr. Johnson turns to me and says, Hey, Bob, would you run in real quick, go to the office, find out what time it is, and come right back out here and tell me I need to know. I think it's time for us to go back in, but I don't have my watch. Okay, Mr. Johnson. So I run into the office, find out what time it is, and I run back out and say to Mr. Johnson, Mr. Johnson, it's 12 o'clock. He said, Thank you, Bob. You and you, come with me now. Everyone else, get into your class. What I didn't know was while I had gone into the office to find out what time it was, a fight had started on the playground field. And you know, have you ever seen a fight at a place, at a play yard? The two kids are fighting in the middle and everyone else is gathered around. Fight, 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 fight. And the teacher comes running up and pushes through the crowd. Well, just as Mr. Johnson's trying to push through the crowd, the two boys that were fighting pulled themselves into the crowd, trying to hide. And Mr. Johnson had just said to the crowd, I want someone to come up here right now and tell me who was fighting, or you're all going to get in trouble. And fat, dumb, and happy walks out of the office going, Mr. Johnson, it's 12 o'clock. Thank you, Bob. You and you with me now. So what it looked like to the crowd was I had just ratted out the two boys that were fighting. So then the only adult in the whole playground grabs the two boys by the scruff of the neck and takes them into the office for the principal to deal with them. And I'm doing what my teacher told me to do. I'm walking off the playground, going back to class. 
And all of a sudden I had a sense that somebody was behind me. And I looked and the entire sixth grade class was coming at me, literally. Now it was probably 20 or 30, maybe 40 kids. I don't remember. All I know was an entire playground of kids was angry with me and coming after me. And I panicked. And instead of running into the building, which would have been the smart thing, I ran under the bleachers. They split up and went under both sides and trapped me underneath. And they began to pummel me, fists in my face, in my gut, beating me up. For I didn't know why. I just knew that I was being beat up until finally one of the older kids in the group pushed people aside, grabbed me and said, come on. And he took me into the office. And as we're walking across the field, I'm in tears. I have no idea what's been, what, why this just happened. And I said, why did they beat me up? And he said, well, you just told on the two guys that were fighting. Oh, what you're talking about? Who's fighting? What are you talking about? You didn't know what you're talking about. And finally, we communicated enough where I realized what had happened. And I was getting beat up. So when I read this story about Zacchaeus walking with Jesus and sensing a grumbling crowd behind him, it brings back some really negative memories in my life. There's this sense of everyone hates me, everyone is against me, everyone is angry with me, and everyone is very, very upset. And at some point, Zacchaeus stands up publicly. Now, we don't know, was this after the meal? As Jesus is coming out of his home? Or is it before they go in? But Zacchaeus stands up publicly in front of the crowd and he says, I have lived in a way that was not honoring to myself, this community, or God. And I am going to make it right. If I have defrauded anyone, and scholars will tell you the way that this is actually worded in the Greek means I'm admitting in a soft way that I have indeed defrauded people. If I have defrauded anyone, I will pay them back fourfold. Now, if you go back to Leviticus, I mean to, to the Mosaic Law, Exodus chapter 21 or 22, I think it is, um, you'll read, if anyone steals from somebody, they don't have to just repay what they stole, but they have to give back four times what they stole. So what Zacchaeus is doing here is he's following the letter of the law. I'm admitting that I have stolen from you. I have defrauded you. And if there's any of you in this crowd who has been defrauded by me, not only do I promise that I will repay you what I took from you, but I will give you four times what I took from you. Oh, and on top of that, half of everything I own is being given to the poor because I recognize that I've been living in a wrong way. Having this interaction with Jesus has opened my eyes. And I know that I know that I know that I'm wrong. And I am sorry and I want to change. And I am repenting right now of my sin. And I'm going to make it right to my community. As God is my witness. Now we have no idea what the crowd says after that. But we do know that Jesus declares 
Zacchaeus and his household righteous. Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house. Let's look at verse 10 one more time, or 11, 9 and 10. Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Jesus was reminding the crowd, this is one of your brothers, folks. And he's doing what the law requires. Yes, he sinned. Yes, he has hurt you. But he is doing what the law requires to make it right before you and by you. And I am telling you, from my position of authority, I declare him as being saved. And then verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I want to I wanna focus on this verse 10 for just a little bit. Because the story is a great story. This guy that nobody likes, he's been a bad guy, everyone hates him, and he finally changes his heart, and he's, he's now saved, quote-unquote, and he's in right relationship with God. All of that's great. But what does it mean when Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to save To seek out and save the lost. Seek out I get. I mean if you look at chapter 15 of Luke. Which is just four chapters ahead of this section. We're given three stories. You're given the story. The parable of the lost coin. Where the woman loses one of her coins. She has ten coins. She loses one of them. And she searches diligently. She lights the candles. She sweeps her entire house until she finds the coin. And then great celebration. You're, you're told about the story of the lost sheep. Jesus leaves, I and mean, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes and seeks the one that is lost. Then you're told the parable of the, of the lost son, if you will, the parable of the father who waits and, and welcomes the son who has become prodigal back with open arms and brings him back into fellowship and right relationship. So Jesus has already laid the ground of what he means about seeking. It's very important to seek out that which is lost. But the question is, is what does it mean to be lost and what does it mean to be saved? These are two words that are kind of interesting to me. And I did a little bit of a study, not a large study, but a little bit of a study. And I wanted to share with you what I learned with that. So if you look at the word lost, first of all, the word lost, and I am not a Greek scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but the word, the, the Greek word that is that is translated lost here is apolemi, A-P-O-L-L-Y-M-I, apolemi. And it means to destroy fully, to perish, to lose. Or it can mean, figuratively, it can mean... Uh, well, literally or figuratively, it can mean destroy, die, lose, mar, or perish. And, but the thing that was interesting is if you look up that word in a in a search on any app that you may have in the in the thing, that word comes up in a lot of different um, passages in Scripture. 
Like if you look in Matthew chapter 2, where Jesus and Mary and Joseph have to leave uh, Nazareth, to, I mean Bethlehem, to go to Egypt. It says, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for and to apollomai him. So there's the sense that, that Jesus' life is in danger because the king wants to, to kill him or destroy him. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you apollomai one of your eyes than you enter into life. I mean, that you enter into, you lose one of your eyes, you apollomai one of your eyes, rather than enter, not getting into uh, heaven and going to hell. Another one that, that was interesting, Jesus is asleep in a boat. A storm comes up and his disciples say, save us, Lord. We are apollomying. We're perishing. Jesus taught a teaching. He said, no one puts new wine into old wineskins because if you do, the skins will burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are apollomied. So are you getting a sense of what this word means? It's no, not of any value, it's useless, it's, it's destroyed, it's dead, it's perishing, it's... So when Jesus says in Luke chapter 19 verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, the lost is any human being who's dying or Decaying or being destroyed. But it's in a sense of a spiritual means. It's this, this, this thought that, that they are on the pathway to eternal damnation. And Jesus came, the Son of Man came to seek those people out. So is it any wonder that he would then go to Zacchaeus? Because the Zacchaeus of the world are the ones who are on the pathway to full and total destruction, eternal damnation and eternal separation from God. If someone doesn't intervene, they will be eternally lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But it's more than just seeking. The Son of Man's intent and purpose isn't just to look for them and find them, but once he finds them, his purpose is to save them. And let's look at what that word means. The word saved. Bear with me, I went all over the place and I'm out of Luke. Let me get back to Luke. The word save in Greek is the word sozo, S-O-Z-O. It means to save, to deliver, to protect, to heal, 
to preserve, to do well, to be made whole. And if you look up passages where that shows up throughout the New Testament. The disciples went to Jesus who was asleep in the boat and said, there's a storm, sozo us, because we are apolomying. A woman who had an issue of blood for over 12 years crawls through the crowd and touches the hem of Jesus' garment, thinking to herself, if I can only touch his garment, I will be sozoed. Jesus says in chapter 10 of Matthew, and you will be hated for all, uh, by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be sozoed. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be sozoed through him. You see, in 1975, when I first came to a personal faith in Christ, 44 years ago now, as of October 25th, I was taught that I was being saved from the wrath of God. And quite frankly, that's not really enough to keep me on the path. Because if I'm always afraid of this angry God who's going to destroy me because of his wrath, because I'm such a bad, evil sinner, or if I ever mess up, he's going to destroy me. I can get discouraged and, 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 and feel like it's hopeless. But the reality is that the word save is not... Just, it is, avoiding any type of damnation or avoiding, you know, I had a friend in high school who said they got their, they, they, they got their get out of jail free card, you know, their, their, their monopoly card. They got a fire escape ticket. All of those funny little glib things. But the reality is, is yes, you are being saved from eternal separation from God. But it's so much more than that. When the Son of Man came to seek and save you. He was offering to you more than just a get-out-of-jail-free card. He was offering you wholeness. He was offering you making right that which had gone wrong. He was giving you something that was beyond yourself. Once you made the mistakes, once you committed the sins, once you violated the covenant, there was no hope for you to ever get it right again. Only because of Jesus' death on the cross, His burial, and His miraculous resurrection are you able to have cleansing from your sin. And this idea that God loved you enough to seek you out when you were in a lost state and offer to you wholeness and all that that entails. Do you realize that you are given the promise in Philippians chapter 4 that when you are in right relationship with God and He hears your prayers, which is a promise out of the Proverbs, that you are to 
not be anxious about anything, but in all things, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the shalom, the peace of God, a peace of Christ will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Well, that peace of God, that shalom, although I'm, I'm mixing it here because shalom is a Hebrew word, but the word of shalom is more than just a cessation of any kind of violence or chaos. It is truly a wholeness. It is a complete everything is rightness. So what Zacchaeus was experiencing that day was the Son of Man who knew everything about him, including his name, before they ever met. Walked up to him. Zacchaeus didn't have to fight through the crowd to get to Jesus. Zacchaeus, I mean, Jesus walked up to Zacchaeus and said, I have sought you, you are lost, you need to be saved. And Zacchaeus somehow, some way, put his faith and his trust in the words that Jesus spoke. And wholeness entered in. Zacchaeus was saved. He had been lost. He was now saved. And as a result of that change of heart of that making right that which had been wrong, of the fixing that which had been broken, which was only done miraculously by the power of God, he then changed the way he lived his life in his community. And he said, I know that I am a pariah in this place. I know that none of you want to have anything to do with me. But I also know that this is my home. And rather than leave and try to start someplace where nobody knows me, I'd rather try to make it right with you. And so I'm promising you up to half of everything I have is yours. I will make sure that the poor of our community are taken care of. I will make sure that if I have cheated or lied or defrauded any of you, you'll get four times what I took from you. This is my promise to you and to my God. Because I cannot describe to you what has happened. I can just tell you that it's real. You need to put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because what He did for me, He can do for you. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And if you have sinned, you are lost. And He will do for you what He did for me. That's not contained in these ten verses. We have to add to understand it. But I was... I was so thrilled earlier in the service when Roy said, this is a time of remembering what God has done for us. Because quite honestly, for me, that's exactly where I've been for so many weeks. I love the Lord. I'm serving the Lord. But I've been a Christian for 45 years, 44 years. There's not a whole lot new. I'm just living just going, not going through the motions. I don't mean that, but just, it's just day to day. It's, it's the normal. It's my life. I very seldom do I actually sin because 
I, it's not part of my life anymore. But the issue is, is that you can become complacent in this truth that you're living in. You can get to the point where it doesn't really, yeah, yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, I've been saved, and yeah, I used to be lost, but now I'm found, and yeah, hallelujah, God saved me. But the reality is, we should be so living in that moment of, I'm saved, that it spills out into our community. Not with a, you're a sinner, you're lost, and you need to be saved. But let me help you to understand what God has done for me. And God help me to live my life in such a way that people see the change. That's what I got out of these ten verses. The Son of Man continues to seek and save the lost. May we be blessed to be part of the work. Let's pray.